Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Matt Williams, welcome to the Center of the Universe. I really appreciate you joining me. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. I guess we should mention we connected through uh, Boomer Muth. Yes. Uh, Boomer, I don't remember what episode he was, but he was probably around 90, something like that, a, a while ago. And and he, I think you listened to his episode and you enjoyed it. I did. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Uh, we called it intentionality. Yes. I, I think we've gone away from the, the theme-based naming and we're now just... Hey, here's the person's name. And the, yeah, I, I think it was an aptly named episode. Boomer is the most intentional person I've ever known, I think. Yeah, he's uh, unusually disciplined about it. Yeah, I, I've never known him to do anything without a very good reason. Yeah, I, I haven't either. I've known him for three years. Yeah. And you and Boomer are in a band together. We are. Yeah, we're in a band called Acoustic Underground. I play bass and Boomer sings and plays guitar. Tell, tell me about the band. How'd you guys get together? So we, uh, Boomer and I are members of a group called YPO, which is the Young Presidents Organization. And it's, it's, a, it's a global organization of people who become presidents or CEOs of companies um, at 45 years old or younger. So I could not have joined. Uh, no, they had to grandfather me in. I, was, I had just turned 46 when I joined, actually. Oh, wow. Um, and he and I met through, through that organization. We're both members of it and got to know each other, got to be friends. And he, we, we kind of, through conversations, realized that both of us were into music and had played instruments and bands. And at one point he said, hey, you know, I'm getting some guys together. You want to come play? And I said, sure. So, so he was already putting the band together. He was already putting it together. And, you know, as often happens, they, they didn't have a bass player because <laughs> bass players are hard to find. Um, why, why is that? Because everybody I, wants to play guitar? I think because everybody wants to play guitar. And that's what happened to me. I played guitar for 30 years and took up the bass uh, to fill a spot in another band um, and kind of fell in love with it. And I'm still not that good at it. And I told Boomer, I was like, you're going to need a real bass player at some point, but I'll play tonight. And I went over and we we kind of hit it off with the rest of the guys and just kept playing. And we've been together for a little over a year. It's really fun. So here's a fun question. My daughter loves playing guitar. She has, I think, three guitars upstairs and a bass uh, guitar. Yeah. What's the difference between the bass and a uh, typical acoustic guitar other than the bass typically has four strings and the acoustic typically has So, six. yes, four strings, four or five, depending on the kind of bass you have, uh, versus a six-string or a 12-string acoustic guitar. But a guitarist would pick up a bass and say, oh, this is just like playing guitar. And mm-hmm. you can spot those players a mile away. In fact, the first time I played bass, I sat in with a band, and about two songs in, the guitar player looked at me and said, you play bass like a guitarist, which is the worst insult anybody can <laughs> give a bass player. Because the technique and the way you play the instrument is completely different. So the way a bass works is that you, you deconstruct chords. Mm. And any bass note that's being played at any given time is, is usually um, one of the notes that makes up the chord that it's played underneath. Okay. So there's a hell of a lot of theory you have to know. You have to be able to pull chords apart and understand, you know, fourths and fifths and sixths and when they fit together. And it, it, it's, it's been a steep learning curve for me. It was it really, really fun. Steeper than guitar? Actually, yeah, because I found myself really good very quickly at rhythm guitar, which is basically, you know, learn some chords and bash your way through. And I got really good at that. Yeah. Um, and bass is much more precise for me. Um, and requires more knowledge of the instrument, more knowledge of the fretboard. I can play a song on a guitar if I know four or five chords. Mm. 
you got to play a hundred notes for any song on the bass. Really? For, oh yeah, it's so much more demanding. I find. I have no idea. How long have you been playing bass? Uh, probably ten years. Okay. Long, but seriously, long... for probably three. And and you, I imagine you're pretty good at it. I I'm still not as good at the bass as I ever was at guitar. I, I'm I'm just I'm just now trying to figure it out, and I, really loving it. I love listening to music. I've never played an instrument uh, unless you include the tuba when I was in seventh grade, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and I had I didn't know that about the bass versus a, a typical guitar. I, and I honestly didn't know it until I picked it up wow. and really started to learn it and realize, wow, there's a lot more to this than I realized. And you really enjoy it because you you stuck with it. it. I really love it. Yeah, it's fun. What kind of music uh, does your band play? We're playing, and we play some originals, but mostly covers. So okay. it's acoustic-y, uh, harmony-driven, because our, our singers are really, really good. Um, Boomer's one of the singers, and there are a couple other guys who D- sing Don's too. The, Don's the other one, right? Don Busick, yeah. yep, yep. Winston Price on the drums, and uh, Phil Hatfield on keys, and then me. Phil Hatfield sounds like a guy who would play keyboard. Yes. He actually plays in two bands. He's cheating on us. <laughs> he sounds like he's pretty good at it. <laughs> he is pretty good. He is pretty good. It's it's really fun. They're great musicians, really good guys. Uh, but the harmonies are especially precise, and, and that's, that's one of our things. Uh, how many gigs a month do you guys play? We try to play once a month. We try to keep it to once a month. And uh, just because you guys are busy and doing other things. Yeah, everybody's got families. Everybody's got jobs. But we love doing it, and we want to keep doing it. We just want to try to keep it to a dull roar. It's a know? pretty cool hobby. It's a blast, man. Yeah. There, there's nothing more fun than playing music with a, with a bunch of guys and realizing you're kind of all in that groove together, and it carries you away, and you look out, and, what, and people are having fun, and they're dancing, and they're singing along. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a kick. Yeah. It's a really cool feeling. Are you guys on an elevated stage, or do you tend to be... It with depends. We've 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 done it all different ways. Yeah, it, it depends on the venue. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Very cool. All right, so you t- were telling me before uh, today that you grew up in Delaware. I was born in Wilmington, Delaware. I don't think I've ever met anybody from Delaware. So it's like we said, everybody says, I was in Delaware once. I drove through it on the way to the beach. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's where I lived. It's yeah. the second, it's, it's the first state. First state to ratify the Constitution. So, right. yes, it is the first state. And it's, it's the second smallest by uh, acreage. Or I don't know how yeah, to say yeah. that. Yeah, second, second to Rhode Island. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and what's its claim to fame besides being the first to ratify the Constitution? Uh, let's see. Um, almost every company in America is incorporated in Delaware. They have some fun laws. They have in fun, fun corporation <laughs> and, and corporate governance laws. Yeah. So, all of a sudden, everybody's incorporated in Delaware. Delaware and South Dakota. South Dakota, too. Yeah. Well, that's true. A lot of banks in South Dakota. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No that's doubt. That's true. So what, what are your fondest memories of growing up in Delaware? Uh, you know, Delaware was, it's a, it was really fun. I lived in Wilmington, which is, it's, it's about 30 miles, I guess, or 30, yeah, 30 miles outside of Philadelphia. Hmm. So we were in the Philadelphia DMA. Um, so we got all our TV from Philadelphia and all that. So I, I, I remember... Growing up and you know watching the Eagles and watching the Phillies and there was a there was a product called Phillies Franks that mm. were hot dogs that were sold uh, in and around the Philadelphia area and back in the seventies and eighties on the back of the package of Phillies Franks they had a coupon for for a free ticket to a Phillies game so the idea was me and all my friends from high school would buy big packages of Phillies Franks. Um, one package to each kid. So there's 12 that's tw- francs. That's, right? a lot, that's a lot of francs. But but you only get one coupon for a ticket, right? So you got 12 francs for each kid. Everybody piles into the to the car with their Phillies francs and their free ticket, and you go up and you have the biggest tailgate ever 
at Vet Stadium, and then you go to a Phillies game. This is blast. This is seventy late seventies, uh, early eighties, yeah, early mid eighties. Okay, yeah, I graduated from high school in eighty five, so early eighties. Okay, they were not very good back then. Uh, there were times when they were good. Tug McGraw was pitching. Yeah, Tug Steve, was great. Steve Carlton, and you know they had they had they had some firepower. Uh, occasionally, Mike Schmidt. Mike Schmidt. Yeah, Schmidt was Mike probably Schmidt. the best third baseman for a decade. Easily. Yeah, heck yeah, yeah. That's yeah, cool. Fun. That's that's it a lot was of cool. fun. How did you travel to the stadium back then? You take a car. Okay. Yeah. So we you were, were driving by. We then. were driving by. Okay, got it. Yeah. You never went as a pre sixteen year old. Nah, not really. Not okay. really. I, I spent a couple of years in Cincinnati, and I would go to the games in Cincinnati. Um, That's a fun ballpark. It was a it was a riverfront stadium at the time, yeah. so it was a long time ago, uh, and this was in the mid seventies. So this was when the Big Red Machine was winning. They were amazing. They looked at right. Yeah. And I can still name the starting nine of the Big Red do Machine. Do it. Let's do it. All right, you ready? Yep. Johnny Bench, Tony Perez, Joe Morgan, Dave Concepcion, Pete Rose, mm. George Foster, Cesar Geronimo, and Ken Griffey. And you went from catcher to first to third, left to right. Left to right. Yeah. Yeah. They and were they were the best team in the in the mid seventies. They were unbelievable. It was so much fun to watch them play. So back then to see the game, you would just get, you know, five bucks from your parents and get on a bus and go down to Riverfront Stadium with your buddies when you were like 10 years old. It was were, cool. They were almost an all-star team by themselves. Yeah, they were unbelievable. Yeah, Johnny Bench in particular was a fantastic catcher. They, they, he was a monster. Yeah, he, he could do everything. He could do everything. They, they were great. Yeah, that's awesome. You, you were lucky. Yeah. You were lucky really to be able fun. to see them. Yeah, if you're a baseball fan, that was a pretty great place to live. I mean, I can't think of a better time and place to live in baseball lore. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying – and I actually have a uh, – Pretty deep rooted. I, I won't say hatred because that's a strong word, but I, I didn't like the Reds for a couple of reasons. One, they were very, very good, and my team uh, is not in their division anymore. But they were. The Astros were in their division back in the back in the day. And, yeah, and Cincinnati would kill them oh, all, yeah. all the time. It was, it was so much fun. We used to we used to me and my couple of my friends on the block would go up into one of our bedrooms and write fan letters to the to the Reds players. And this was back in the time when you would actually get responses. Really? So I would collect these handwritten responses from these players. Um, yeah, I had a bunch of them. A bunch of them. Do you I still had, have them? No. No, I wish I did. What, what happened to them? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I got. I stuck them in a box somewhere, and they just got lost That's crazy somewhere in the shuffle happens. when I moved back to Wilmington. Did you get one from Johnny Bench? I did get one from Johnny Bench, and I got one from Dave Concepcion. I remember getting the Dave Concepcion one. It was, it was just an envelope with my address on it. And there was nothing in the envelope except a picture of him from the Reds yearbook that was ripped out by hand <laughs> and signed with a ballpoint pen. It was like, that is so cool. Did he not have other pictures of himself in other forms? No, I've got, so I've got this picture in my head of him sitting in the locker room <laughs> with a couple of fan letters that have come in that week that somebody from the office brought in. And he's got a yearbook and he's just ripping it out, signing it and handing it to somebody. And they stuck it in an envelope and sent it back to me. I wonder how many yearbooks they had. He, he may have gone through a few. I don't know. Yeah, Concepcion <laughs> was great. I mean, it was it was cool. So uh, most of your childhood was in Wilmington. Yes, I spent four years living in Cincinnati. Okay. And what ages were you in Cincinnati? First grade to fifth grade. Okay, so you have good good memories of, oh, yeah, I love of living in Cincinnati. Yeah. yeah, do you go back to Cincinnati ever? Any Never. reason to go back? I haven't been back in probably 40 years. Yeah, uh, I used to go to that part of the world pretty regularly, and it's kind of a foodie scene in part of their downtown now. They've got some fantastic uh, mom-and-pop kind of restaurants oh, yeah. in Cincinnati. I've heard that, that it's a really cool town. Yeah, it is. It's a very cool town. Yeah. And they've redone a lot along the river there. Yeah. yeah. I've never been back. All right, so when you were in like middle school, how were you spending your time? Middle school. 
Wow. Uh, probably just staring at girls. And uh, <laughs> puberty was a thing back then. Puberty was a thing back then. Yeah, that was that was middle school. Was staring at girls and wondering like how much more gawky can I get? Because I was like six three and weighed about one hundred and twenty pounds in middle school. <laughs> yeah, I got really tall, really fast. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What did you grow like a foot in a year? Oh, oh man. Yeah. Stretch marks galore. Oh my gosh. Not pretty. <laughs> not pretty. It's better to be tall than short. I would argue. I think so. But if you get that tall that quickly, it's very strange. You stand. So, you stand out. Oh man, you're in the back row, middle of every class picture, and like it's head, 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 and then bam, who's this cornstalk in the back row? That was me. Did you play basketball? No. You probably Everybody get that question all the time. Me yeah, that. Sorry for and that. And I was terrible at basketball. I played baseball and soccer, um, and I was a lousy basketball player. I just never got it. Were you good at soccer and baseball? I was okay at soccer. I was better at baseball. Really? Yeah, I was a good pitcher. Okay. Yeah. Uh, were you overpowering people as a pitcher? No. I didn't have a lot of speed, but uh, believe it or not, I had a really good knuckleball. Oh, knuckleball's fun to I pitch. I developed a knuckleball when I was in high school because I couldn't overpower anybody. And my, my curveball was weak at best. So I started playing around with a changeup, and then somebody said, let me show you how to throw or a do, knuckleball. Do something weird with your and, fingers, and, yeah. And I figured it out, and... My catcher hated my guts, but I could throw a knuckleball. So I, I caught uh, when I was a teenager, and I, I caught this kid who was a knuckleballer for six innings. And it was oh, the most nightmare. tiring six innings of my life. Nightmare. Yeah. You're just covered in bruises. <laughs> it's, in, it's in the dirt like two-thirds <laughs> right. of every— It's awful. Yeah. It's, it's uh, awful. But, it, but as the pitcher, it's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. It's great. It's, re- it's really fun because it's, it's so frustrating to a batter. It's just they perplexing. Don't, and you're, not even sure. you're not even sure where the ball's going to go, no. right? No. No, it could go anywhere. It could go anywhere, but when you when you when you when you reel off a good one, and you could just watch the seams go toward home plate because it's not moving. Yeah, it's still it's awesome. And something in the air is going to catch it, and it's, it's going to move. It's yeah. going to drop, or it's going to wiggle. Who knows what it'll do? It, it, yeah, yeah, even if it just wiggles a little bit, it's off putting for the batter. Yeah, totally. Yeah, did you have a variation of of the pitch, or did you grab it the same way and throw it the same way? Every no, time? I grabbed it almost. I grabbed it the same way almost every time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Yeah. I put the I put my fingers on either side of the seams. On the on the narrow end of the seams, I okay. dug my fingernails in. Yeah, and bam, and, and it works. It works. It's amazing there aren't more knuckleballers in the major leagues. Yeah, seriously, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't. I always thought it was kind of like it was kind of like the last refuge of a scoundrel. When you're not a really good pitcher, <laughs> if you can develop a knuckleball, maybe you can get a few more years out of it. <laughs> you thought of yourself as a scoundrel, or? totally. Well, because I didn't have enough power, and my my curveball didn't move enough. Could you could you put your fastball or your changeup or your curveball essentially where you wanted it in the strike really zone? Really good control. Okay, but but as soon as batters figured me out, they just roped me. It didn't matter where you no. put it. Yeah, no, because no, I I couldn't overpower them. All right, right on. Did you uh, play baseball later in life or or uh, just through high school? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I did you ever convert to softball at any point? No, I did, and I and I. I I questioned it, and then I ended up having a blast playing softball. Yeah. So it might it. be because like I was a I was an okay hitter, um, not strong enough to be a power hitter. I was a contact hitter, right? Um, and I think you can get away with that in regular baseball and softball. It's not as fun. No, it's not. And as I was fun. a pitcher, and I didn't really want to pitch softball. S- slow pitch, underhanded. It's, yeah, it's, it's right. very, very different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you love school when you were younger? I. Did I love school? Um, Did you love the academics in school, I should say? You know, I, I liked the academics at school only because they were easy. So I, I was one of those guys who, who was lucky enough to be able to get through school without working very hard. 
and I got pretty good grades because it came fairly easily through high school. And then I got into a good college and just got my butt kicked. You weren't prepared. Oh, no. And I thought I could just ease my way through it the way I did high school. It happens to a lot of kids. Oh, man. I didn't figure it out till my junior, senior year. And by then, it was too late for your GPA. You were already snowed under. Yeah, well, and you went to a, uh, a pretty tough school to get into one, but I think it's even harder to get through it. I, I think that's true. I went to William & Mary, and yeah. I loved it. Um, had a great time, you know, played in a band, joined the fraternity, did the whole college thing, and had a blast. But my academic record was awful because I, cause I tried to, you know, kind of squeak my way through school, and you can't do it at that place. Not at William & Mary. I mean— yeah. A lot of kids, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of kids go there and they know the deal. They know they are academics basically 24 7. Yeah. And if you're doing, if you're in a band or you've got other extracurricular things going on in your life, it's going to be tough. Well, especially now. And, and this was in the, in the late 80s and it was hard then. But now I wouldn't have a prayer. I would have, I wouldn't, I would have washed out really fast. It's much harder now than it was then. How did you know about William and Mary from Delaware? I, you know, I had a, we had a college counselor in my, in my school that, uh, put it on the list and I looked into it and it honestly it felt like what a school should look like to me right you know it looked like that's what college should look like and I went and visited and I thought I wanted to study government and it has a really good government program. oh it's fantastic um so I I ended up there I got in off the wait list so I didn't think I was going to go to William and Mary I actually had already kind of had a roommate and was ready to go to Wake Forest oh wow and then uh on prom weekend in my senior year, I was at the beach with my girlfriend who had chosen William and Mary as her first choice and not gotten in. And the phone rang and it was my parents saying, we just got your letter from William and Mary. You got in. <laughs> and I was all excited. And then I realized like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> it was a very awkward moment. But she eventually found out. She found out right then. Yeah. 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 Because you couldn't get I didn't handle it well. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a senior in high school. I can't pretend to have handled it well. Yeah. How did yeah. she take it? Uh, not great. Yeah. And we're not together anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's okay. It worked out for both of us. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, let me ask this. Uh, how many siblings do you have? I have a younger sister. I have a younger sister. No other siblings. Yeah. Uh, are, are you close in age? Uh, three years. She's okay. three years younger than me. I have a sister three years younger than me. Wow. Look at that. That's really weird. And we're both tall. Yeah. She's tall too. Yeah. Hmm. 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 Weird. Maybe our sisters are the same person. <laughs> I can't imague they are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you enjoy growing up with your sister? Yeah. We were never really close growing up. We kind of just did our own things. And we were far enough apart in age that we were never really having the same experiences at the same time. Right. You know? Um, and, you know, your little sister, when you're 10 years old or 15 years old, is like, you don't want to hang out with your little sister. You know, you don't have anything in common. You don't have anything to talk about. She's just a big pain in the butt. Right. You know? um, so we got closer after we both got out of college and we were having the same experiences we were adults the age the age difference didn't matter very much and she's really cool she's, yeah the the brain fully forms in the, the early to mid 20s yeah for for men closer to mid 20s for yeah. young ladies closer to early 20s but yeah it's amazing what can uh, happen and what how relationships uh 
gravitate to a mature place when the brain is fully formed. Well, exactly. And then your fully formed brain meets this person and you think, wow, you know, she's pretty cool. We should have hung out a little more. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> you know? Where Does so, she live in Delaware? She lives in California. Oh, nice. Yeah. She lives in Orange County, California. She's in SoCal. With her husband. Yeah. It's been a weird ride there, I imagine, but we don't we don't need to get into that. Uh, yeah. She so. goes back and forth. She, uh, she and her husband and her family have a place in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho that they go back and forth to, which is pretty great. I can imagine it's that's beautiful. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. All right. So you, you go to William and Mary and you'll, at what point did you figure out what you were going to major in? Um, at the point where my dad sat me down and said, your 1.6 grade point average is not going to cut it. <laughs> and this English major will not get you a job. You need to measure in business. <laughs> and, and you were thankful so your dad had that He was right. He was absolutely right. Not because I should be a business major to get a job. You should be able to major in whatever you want and still get a job, which I think is true. But I needed to go into a, uh, a more practical field because my thought was, I want to go to law school. Mm. I, I thought I wanted to go to law school, but my grade point average was so lousy. There was no way I was getting into law school. And he sat me down one day. This was a summer after my sophomore year, and I had a 1.6 grade point average. So it was on academic probation, all kinds of problems. And he said, you know what your problem is? I said, what? He said, you're majoring in band and fraternity. You have a double major <laughs> he in wasn't band wrong. and fraternity. I was like, you know, you're probably right. And he said, you need to get your act together. You're going to be a business major. You're going to go into the business school. You're going to go back to summer school and get the credits you need to get into the business school. And if you don't, I'm not going to pay for your education anymore. Yeah. Good for like, him. You know what? He was right. Oh, he's absolutely right. <laughs> so I did, and it it worked out okay. And I became a marketing major because I liked the... Uh, I liked the idea of combining creativity with business problem solving because both those things were interesting to me. And marketing seemed like the way to do that. It seemed like that's where, that's where you could really kind of let your brain run free, but not disconnected from the realities of business. And I really like that. Yeah, business is quite pragmatic Yeah. in the end, uh, but you need creativity to do better than the competition or yeah. to, to succeed, succeed in the, um, in the marketplace. Yeah. And I, I don't have a, I don't have a formulaic brain the way you, I think you need to have to be an accountant or to be a finance major or something like that. I don't have that kind of, I don't have the, the structure in my brain for that. Um, and marketing seemed to fit really well and I loved it and I was, I was pretty good at it. It came fairly naturally to me. It just made sense. So at a high level, it's solving business problems creatively one layer deeper for the casual listener, how would you describe marketing? Marketing is simply the art of finding and retaining customers. Mm. That's all you're doing. So you're inventing products. You're creating ways to promote those products. You know, the four P's are promotion, product, pricing, and placement. So distribute those products, create the products, promote those products or services, um, and create a relationship with those customers that lasts and is profitable. I love how succinct you just were there. Find and maintain. Customers. Finding, find and create profitable customers. Yeah, that's your job. And and you love it. I, I do. It's fun. It's fun. I, and I I loved especially the advertising side of the business because I you know I worked in advertising agencies for thirty years and the cool thing about that is you're surrounding yourself with people who get who get paid and make a career to think in ways other people don't think. Mm. And to see things in ways other people don't see them, and to solve problems with, 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 with ways of thinking that are just bizarre, but they work, and and that's really fun. That's a very dynamic and interesting environment to be in. When did you know you you were going to be a marketing guy? Um, I did an internship 
in my dad's company um, where he was the he was the director of marketing for DuPont. Um, you know, big multi-global industrial company. Huge. And, and yeah, hundreds of thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of employees. And he brought me into his department to do an internship because he knew I was interested in marketing. And I got there and and it was really helpful and I learned a lot, but it, but the corporate environment didn't feel like the place I wanted to spend my career. But these advertising agency people seemed like they were having a really good time. They were they were fun. They were they were joking it up. They weren't wearing suits. It was like that. These these are the guys I want to hang out with. This is cool. Um, so I ended up getting introduced to a couple of people from the agency side through my dad's job at Dupont, and I I know that they talked to me as a favor to him. It was it was nepotism through and through. I knew it was. But it got I, I love how you admitted that. Oh, because most, totally. Most people who benefit from nepotism never admit it. Uh, no, it was. It, it was it was connections. It was nepotism. And my dad was the client. So he calls the agency and he says, hey, would you talk to my son about advertising? Of course, the answer is yes. So they do. And one thing led to another. And I got a job offer from one of those companies and ended up going to work in Philadelphia after I graduated from uh, William & Mary at a, an ad agency that doesn't exist anymore called mm. Ketchum Advertising. What was your job right out of college? I was an assistant account executive. What does that mean? Assistant account executives, basically you're doing proofreading. So I'm proofreading direct mail packages, you know? <laughs> so like, I have nightmares about this. Yeah, I was going to say. You know how you proofread for spelling? Mm. You read words back. You read sentences backwards. So, so the meaning, it, they lose all their meaning and you're only reading individual words. Ah. Uh. Yeah, and so you, you can and you can still you know what the word is even though you're reading it backwards. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, and and you're sitting across a desk from somebody just like I am with you. They have a copy of it, and I have a copy of it. And there's a reader and somebody who's marking, and you just read it, and the other person marks up the marks up the what was called then the mechanical, which is the thing you're printing. This is before spell check. It's before spell. It's before computers, man. <laughs> we didn't have computers on the desk. And you were doing this eight hours a day. Uh, no, that was only part of my job. The other part was like billing and invoices. All the stuff I mean, nobody else wanted awful. to do. Exactly. Yeah. This is total bottom of the totem pole kind of stuff. you know. Um, but you're in an ad agency and you feel like a little junior madman and that was kind of cool. Um, but I loved it. I learned how to think creatively about things. I worked on some interesting projects for you know weird brands like Certainty Insulation and Showboat Casinos and Chemlong Lawn Care. <laughs> everything. Know, like these super, super obscure kind of brands. And, but the everything part of it was what made it so fun. Mm. And I think that's what happens with advertising people is they get addicted to the variety of it. And, you know, one minute you're going to be in a, in a meeting talking about, you know, business to business industrial coatings. And then the next minute you're going to be in a meeting with somebody who makes cookies. And the minute, minute after that, you're going to be in a meeting with, a, with somebody who sells toothpaste. You know, so you learn a ton about lots of different businesses and you, you get really good at, at learning transferable things across those businesses. So you can look at a situation and say, you know, I think I've seen this before. I saw it over here in the industrial coatings category and here's how it worked. Yeah. And I can apply that to packaged goods. I imagine, most really of good. it's I imagine most of it is transferable. I think it is. And it makes you good at lateral thinking. It makes you good at connecting things that seem disconnected. Yeah, the casual person would say the showboat casino and, and some industrial company. Yeah, yeah. What, what do they have in what, common? What do they have? And they have a lot, you know, a lot, actually. What, who was your favorite client back then? Uh, my what, favorite what, client back then in Philadelphia, the one I spent the most time on was, was Certainty Insulation. 
So you know a lot about insulation. I know about R values. I know a lot about insulation. It stayed yeah. with you. Oh, you never forget this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. My client was crazy. And I won't, I won't say his name, but uh, he was the kind of guy that when the phone rang and you heard him on the other end, like the shiver would come down your spine because he was just going to chew your face off about something. Could he, be anything. He, he just needed anything to, to complain about. He was about. just kind of an angry guy. Yeah. And here I am, you know, 22 years old and, and getting my face chewed off by this 50-year-old guy who sits in a big office, you know, scaring the pants off me. <laughs> like, yeah, it was wild. He was a piece of work. How long did you have to endure that? About two years. It's a long time. It's a long time. It's a long time, but it makes you resilient. It, it makes you realize that in hindsight that, man, you don't have to be that way. Nothing's that important. So uh, Philly led to Richmond with a job move? Is that what yeah, I mean? yeah. So one of my very, very best friends, who to this day is still one of my best friends. In fact, I'm flying out to Seattle to see him in two weeks. Um, worked with me at Ketchum. Okay. We were both account exec, junior account executives. And he left to get a job, to go get a job at this agency I'd never heard of in Richmond, Virginia, uh, called the Martin Agency. And he came down to Richmond and about six months later, he called me and he was like, hey, you know, this place is really cool. You should come down. I'm going to get an interview for you. And you can just come down, do the interview on a Friday and hang out with me on a week, on, on the weekend. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'm single. I got nothing to lose. And, you know, things aren't, you know, things aren't going great at this agency that no longer exists up in Philadelphia. And people kind of knew it wasn't going great. So I thought, well, I'll try my luck down in, down in Richmond. Were you a um, single man at the time? Yeah. Yeah. So... I just loaded up a U-Haul and me and my roommate drove down. He followed me in his car, helped me move in and drove. He drove back up to Philadelphia and left me in Richmond. And I figured, you know, I'll stay here working at this agency for a couple of years and figure out what I want to do with my life and then go do it. Because this seemed like a good thing to do at the time. Back then, not a lot of people were thinking, hey, I'll move to Richmond and stay there the rest of my life. No, and I had never really been to Richmond. For, for as much time as I spent in Williamsburg, I think I came to Richmond maybe twice in the course of those four years, both times to see a concert. I was going to say it had to be music. Yeah. It was music. So one time I came up to see uh, Billy Bragg at a, at a club called Rockets. Yep. And then the other time I came up to the Richmond Coliseum to see Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Fantastic band, horrible acoustics. Horrible. The Richmond the Coliseum worst. is the worst place in the world for music. Yeah, I don't know why anybody would ever play there. I, uh, I, I don't know. I'm sure David Crosby was not pleased. Uh, so. As well as uh, Stills and Nash. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. So, so that, that was, those were the only times I was in Richmond. Um, but I came up here and got an apartment down in Chaco Bottom and... Kind of, you, know, you, you went straight to the heart. I went straight downtown. Straight downtown. What were your impressions of Richmond before you ever really spent time there? Obviously, going to a couple of concerts, you, you've been to yeah. Richmond, but you didn't really understand the place. What, what did you think it was going to be? So coming from Philadelphia, I knew it was a smaller city because I lived right in Center City, and I, was, I didn't have a car. I walked everywhere. I loved it. So I was a little trepidatious about coming to you know Richmond, small town. It felt like small town. And the South. And the South, which the, the South didn't bother me so much, but I didn't realize just how um, how openly Confederate Richmond was in 1991. Yeah. I mean, it was just around you. Weird, weirdly yeah. and horribly. Yeah, it was just around you. And it, it, it added to the sense of culture shock that you get anytime you move from one city to another. And I, I felt it. More so, I think, because of that, coming from Philadelphia to there, uh, to Richmond. 
But I, I had a great time, and uh, you know, I was two blocks away from the flood zone, and the flood zone had lots of great music. Oh my gosh! All the time, and three floors of it, right? Amazing! It was a great venue, and Dave Matthews Band was the house band. Yeah, you know, they hadn't broken gigantic yet, so we they were out of Charlottesville, there. come to Richmond all the time. Yeah, yeah, play once a week down there. Yeah, Monday nights or Tuesday nights, I forget which. But you just go down to the flood zone, catch Dave Matthews with twenty other people. You know? Unbelievable! Yeah, it was pretty cool. Boy Tinsley on the fiddle, right? Yeah, yeah. They, were, they were great. Yeah, Boyd, Boyd and uh, Dave both from Charlottesville. I mean, Dave, Dave, I guess, grew up in South Africa, but they, they both lived in Charlottesville yeah, for a really yeah, long right, time. Right. So, you know, it, it was that was pretty cool. Um, and then there were awesome bands going through there. And I was lucky because my best friend from junior high school and high school actually lived in Richmond. Mm. So I had I had somebody to kind of, you know, latch on to when I got to town. So I didn't come here not knowing anybody. I had a good friend here and I was able to kind of get to know his friends and hang out with them. So I had a kind of a built-in crew when I got here, which was nice. Yeah, made, it, made it easier. That's yeah, a, lot, a lot easier having somebody in there. They can yeah. show you around and tell you yeah, what's exactly. good and maybe not so good yeah, exactly. about the town. Exactly. Uh, you brought up the, the whole Confederate notion and you had lived in Williamsburg for four years yeah. before that. And, and I, I, I think you will agree with this. Williamsburg get, puts off a very colonial feel. Oh yeah, <laughs> super colonial. <laughs> uh, and you're kind of in a, when you're in college, you're in a bubble. Yeah, right. Right. You, right. You're not really experiencing a, a mid-sized uh, town like Richmond is. No, I mean you think about Williamsburg and William and Mary. It's like a bubble inside a bubble. Right. Right. Yeah. So William and Mary is a bubble inside the bubble of Williamsburg. Um, so yeah, I actually liked that about it at the time. I wanted that. And it was really actually kind of cool where I would get stressed out at school and I would just say, you know, I'm going walking down Duke of Gloucester Street. Well, and you just you just walk down Dog Street and you walk back up. It's a mile each way and clear your head. And it feels like you've left, you know, the regular world. You're on this colonial planet. And yeah. it's, it's a really nice little stress release. It was nice to have it there. People come from all over to visit that part of uh the state of Virginia. Yeah, it's an amazing. Colonial Williamsburg was a it was a cool place to have right nearby. So I, I have uh, taken my kids on spring break to Waysburg. <laughs> yep. They're doing some amazing stuff down there. Really? I like to say right now. What's going amazing on there? Stuff right now. They, they're, um, they have a new uh, president and CEO who is, who's doing a wonderful job of kind of recentering them on, on their, their educational mission and is revitalizing some of the programming and, and, and the work that they're doing there. And there's amazing archeological work being done down mm. there. They teamed up with William and Mary uh, and actually found the oldest uh, black school in America near, on, near, near, in Williamsburg, in uh, Colonial Williamsburg. It, it, it's actually, it, it's, it's right on the edge of the campus of William and Mary in Colonial Williamsburg. It's called the Bray School. And it was hidden inside a building that had literally been built up around it. What? Yeah. And, and the, the people at Colonial Williamsburg did all this archaeological work and research work and realized, we think the Bray School is inside this building. What year did they just they did, that? This was, this was a year ago. That's two, two years ago. Unbelievable. So it was, it was, I hope I get this story mostly right. So it was inside what was the ROTC building mm. for William and Mary. And they had built this building around this old building that was the Bray School, not knowing that that's what this building was. And uh, the archaeologists and the researchers at Colonial Williamsburg suspected this is where the Bray School was, and they went to uh, Catherine Rowe, who's the president of William & Mary, and, and through their partnership were able to pull some slats off the outside of the ROTC building and reveal 
the infrastructure of the Bray School, and they had done enough research that they were able to look at what was revealed and say, this confirms that this is the building. And it was mostly intact, the old school? Inside the Razzi building, yeah. That's yeah. unbelievable. It's like a Russian doll building. It's like a building yeah. inside a building. It's really cool. And they're now um, excavating the entire thing. Like brick by brick and, and board by board, they're, they're, they're taking it apart. It's amazing. Really cool. Can the public check that out? Uh, not yet. I don't believe so. Probably another couple of years, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but it's really wild. That really is really cool. I've never heard anything, anything like that. Yeah, it's really, really cool. So so Colonial Williamsburg has some really interesting stuff going on right now. If you've been there before, you should go back because you haven't you haven't really experienced it yet. Yeah, the the Bray School, uh that that story's incredible. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. And and what you know, they found they found old chimneys inside the wall. They found old uh stairways within the building that had been covered up by walls and the stairways are worn. The floor, the floorboards of the stairs are worn where the students walked up and down the stairs. I mean, it's really cool. When, when do they think uh, the Bray school was uh, erected or constructed? Oh man, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure what the dates were. Late, late 16, early 1700s. Yeah. So it was back in the, in the 17, early 1800s. I think. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was actually moved. They moved it. To, a, to the location where they found it. And it's one of the most amazing things that they didn't just tear it down. They actually moved the building. I, I was hoping that my uh, date range was more accurate than yours, but it sounds like you know it, <laughs> it which doesn't say much about uh, our, our history oh, as a man, country. I'm making it up now. I'm out of my depth. No, but you're probably closer than I am. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you come to Richmond. Yeah. Uh, it's a little off-putting, maybe to uh, more than a little off-putting, seeing all the Confederate flags. So. Uh, it, did, it didn't bother me. I mean, the... the, the uh, and I say it didn't bother me. I'm not proud that it didn't bother me. It should have bothered me more than it did. Yeah, it but I don't, I don't know that it bothered. It. You know, I, it just didn't. It didn't register on my 23 year old brain at the time. Um, so, well, if you were if you were white in Richmond, it, you probably didn't give it a second thought. If you were not white, you probably it bothered think, you all the time. Uh, I suspect that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so so yes, it was different, and it 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 put me off, but it didn't put me off so much that I didn't want to stay in Richmond and. So I stayed here. I, I went to work at Martin, and I, and I just kind of fell in love with the place. I loved the creative vibe of it. I, it, I loved that not only was it, you know, quote-unquote creative the way an advertising agency should be, it was among the most creative agencies in the country. And when you put in all the legwork to do the strategy and do the research and work with the client, when you got the work back, the work was fantastic. Mm. The idea was amazing, and it was it was funny and insightful and brilliantly crafted. And it was like, this is what advertising is supposed to be. And I had no idea coming from another agency that wasn't creatively as good as Martin that it was supposed to be like this. And I just got a rush about a rush out of being around those kind of ideas and contributing as much as I could to creating those ideas. And I loved the community that had built up at that company. And I just, you know, 26 years later, I, I hadn't left. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm as a casual uh, observer of all things. Uh, I would, if you said, "Hey, name ten cities or even twenty cities that are really good at, at advertising," Richmond would not be in my top twenty. No, and 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 it's become that now. There's some really terrific ad agencies in Richmond, not yeah. just Martin. Oh, but, really? But multiple others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some really good ones here. Did Martin attract the others? You think? I think a lot of that happened that way. Martin grew fast and and is still i think the largest agency in town by a by a fair margin but it would attract really talented people 
And there's a Martin diaspora that kind of comes out from the company and they start other agencies and they, you know, they come from the brand center at VCU now, which is the best graduate advertising program in the country. So a lot, oh yeah. Uh, So a lot of people graduate from VCU and stay in Richmond and, you know, the startup agencies or startup design shops and and Richmond's become quite the little uh, advertising hub. It's pretty cool. Yeah. We're kind of a foodie town now too. Yeah. Look at us getting all cool. <laughs> it was not, 91. I don't think anybody was saying cool. 91, about there was nothing cool about Richmond. It was weird. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, your, your perspective is fantastic. All right. So you spent 26 years at Martin. I did. Um, the last five as CEO. Right. Uh, working your way from basically entry level, I imagine, when you came to town, up, oh, yeah. to, up to CEO. What was that journey like? Uh, it was wild. One of the things you realize about advertising is that, that it affords you the opportunity to have some really wild experiences. Uh, and I don't know what it is about advertising that does that. Maybe it's the proximity of the culture. People want to be around it. It attracts interesting people. But, you know, so I was, I was present when the gecko was invented. You know, please tell that story. So, all right. So here's how the gecko was invented. And it feels like something straight out of Mad Men, but um, we started working with Geico in 1993, I think. So we worked with Geico. I worked with Geico over 20 years. Mm. And in 1995 or so, 96, two things happened. One was Geico decided they wanted to go west of the Mississippi, which they'd never done. And the other was there was a Screen Actors Guild strike. So we mm. were making TV commercials, but we couldn't put people in them because all the actors were on strike. Right. So we're doing these focus groups in Phoenix with with Geico, and it's me and the creative director, who is an artist, and Ted Ward, who's the chief marketing officer at Geico. And well, the three what, of us. What was your job at the time? I was an account executive. Okay. So I was like the client guy, the the client relationship guy, and um, the three of us are going to these focus groups, and nobody in Phoenix can pronounce the name of the company, right? Geico or Geico, or much, like, much less what it stands for, right? right? Like government employees insurance company, right? <laughs> so why would I ever entrust my car insurance to this company whose name I can't pronounce? So we leave the focus group, and as you do after every focus group, you go to the bar. So we're sitting in the bar in the hotel in, in Phoenix, and we're bemoaning the fact that nobody can pronounce the name of our client's company. Like, what are we going to do, Ted? How, what are we going to do? So Ted and I are figuring, trying to figure out what we're going to do about this, and the creative director is sitting next to me with a napkin in front of him, and he's drawing. And he slides this napkin over to Ted as a joke, and he says, hey, Ted, you should do this. And on the napkin is a drawing of a lizard with a speech bubble over his head that says, I'm a gecko, don't call me Geico. And Ted picks it up and goes, you know what? Do that. And hands it back to him. And that's how the gecko was invented. So we went back to Richmond and did a bunch of TV spots with an animated gecko telling people that he's not Geico. Stop calling him. <laughs> did you have a lot of animation in your advertising back then? Uh, you know, no. We did it because we couldn't hire live actors. Yeah. Right? So the SAG strike and the fact that nobody in Phoenix could pronounce Geico is why the Gecko was born. That is a fantastic story. So and there I, you go. And I have to ask you, just like the Johnny Bench letter, Yeah. where's that napkin today? And the yeah. napkin is actually framed and hanging on the wall at the Interpublic Group, which is the parent company who owns the Martin Agency. It, it, I'm glad it's uh, well cared for. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you were one of three people there when that was born. Yeah. And, you know, we, we always make a big deal in the advertising business about trying to dispel the myths that this is just, you know, 
some magical person throwing pencils into the ceiling, having, <laughs> having crazy ideas, you know, like John Hamm has it come to him and Mad Men, and all of a sudden he's invented the most famous advertising in, in the world. No, it's all very strategic and it's all very, you know, there's lots of research and we think very hard about this. But not that one. The gecko was just a guy over beers drawn on a napkin. That was an exception, though. Usually it is a Very lot of hard work and hard thinking. Actually. Very much the exception. Um, so, it, yeah, it was wild. It, it, the Gecko is probably, in the last 20, 25 years, top three. It's one of the, one of the most recognized brand icons in history. I mean, it's up there with Tony the Tiger and the yeah. Pillsbury Doughboy, <laughs> you know? When, when those advertisements came out, this is how impactful the, the Gecko was. My mom said, asked me if I'd seen the commercials. And I'm like, I, I don't think so. And then I saw it, and I told her that I'd seen the uh, commercials. And she said, isn't that gecko fantastic? <laughs> Isn't he fantastic? Like, I don't think, Mom, I don't think you knew what a gecko was <laughs> before right. these commercials. He's just fantastic. Why does he have a uh, foreign accent? Because it was funny. What, like, is, what is the accent? It's Cockney. It's a, it's a British Cockney accent, and the guy who voices the gecko is a disc jockey from London. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that we did in a casting call with hundreds of people, and we just thought his voice had character, and it was, and he was funny. So you weren't necessarily going for a Cockney British accent? No, no. But, I, but he brought it, didn't he? He brought it. That was him, and he was funny, and he fit the, the gecko perfectly. And it's animated by a company in L.A. called Framestore. Who does an amazing job? If you the next gecko commercial you see, I ask everybody to watch how he moves, mm. how his how his how his face moves, how he expresses himself, how his hands move. It's unbelievable how human he is, and it, and it's because the animators have put hundreds and hundreds of hours into modeling the way he moves. It's unbelievable. It's really cool. Old school way of drawing cartoons. You're you're doing eight and a half by elevens or whatever the size was. Individual drawings yeah, cells and hundreds if not thousands of those to make a i don't know 15 yeah. 20 minute I mean, this is all computerized now but the 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 amount of kind of human anatomy and motion science that goes into animating a character like the gecko as well as they do it it's astounding uh the gecko's been around for a long time yeah does he stick around for another who knows how long ah man i don't know i i think so i don't see him going anywhere I mean, he's a, he's a multi-billion-dollar asset for Geico now. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't, th I don't I, think Mr. Buffett would ever retire the Geico. Yeah. <laughs> he's too smart. Yeah, and, and whoever follows Mr. Buffett, I, I don't think they get rid of the Geico I either. I don't think so. Yeah. Think uh, so that leads me to the, the, the caveman or cavemen. Yeah. Yeah, I was in that, that one, too. Tell so me the that caveman, story. The caveman um, was a simple idea rooted in telling people that Geico.com was easy to work with. So you talk to people about getting insurance on the internet, and back in the day when this happened, everybody was like, ah, oh, I asked you for all this information, and it's scary, and it takes too long. And, and, and we said, all right, we have to build Geico a website that's easy to use, and we have to simply tell people that geico.com is really easy, and you shouldn't be worried about using it. Don't be afraid to use geico.com. So the, the, the creative team who developed the caveman just came in and it was during one of these meetings where they're presenting, you know, 10 different ideas that, that could deliver on this very simple brief. And one of them was this idea that they were going to invent these two cavemen who were, were incredibly sophisticated and intelligent, but nobody gave them any credit because they're cavemen. Right. <laughs> and that's the idea. And the whole thing is going to be like, it's so easy a caveman can do it. And they're going to be very offended by that. That's the, that's the campaign. 
And was it immediately and like, it, oh my gosh, this is yes, it? Yes, it was immediately like, oh my God, this is the craziest, weirdest idea, but the scripts were freaking hilarious. Oh, so who writes the scripts? Uh, the creative team who did it wrote the scripts. And they just nailed it. They just nailed it. It was just hilarious. And that lasted, for, that uh, that was, it was iconic in its own right. Oh, well, uh, it turned uh, into a TV show. <laughs> did you ever watch the Caveman TV I, show? I think I may have watched the first episode. It was awful. I mean, just <laughs> awful. And I felt so bad because the guy who invented the caveman, who wrote all the scripts at Martin, was a guy named is a guy named Joe Lawson, and he's an incredibly talented writer. And when the Caveman TV show came up, Joe said, "All right, this is it. I'm moving to L.A." And he quit Martin and he went to write for the Caveman TV show. And I think he had this very, you know, this very rude awakening of, "Oh my gosh, writing for writing for TV in it's L.A. Different. is very different from writing commercials in in, in Richmond." Um, but good, lucky for Joe and lucky for L.A. He's still there, still writing, and mm. is very successful because he's really, really good. But uh, he's writing for like uh, sitcoms. He's and- writing for sitcoms. I think he wrote for Modern Family for a while. He's written some stuff for Will Ferrell. He's very talented. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, don't, I keep saying the word fantastic. I don't know why I keep going back to that word, but I, I, I'm, I mean it sincerely. Yeah, no, he's he's super talented and a really nice guy. Yeah, I think the caveman uh, idea works beautifully, obviously, for advertising for uh, Geico. And, and I think it's a lot easier to be funny in a minute or 30-second spot. But in, even in sitcoms, you have you have to have storylines, two or three yeah, storylines right. working at any given point. And, yeah. and if you're, they're really good, they persist beyond that one episode. Yeah. It's a very different uh, notion than... Yeah, the structure is different for sure. Um, I think the business is different and the way they treat writers is different and the... the, the the respect and care that they give to the to the craft of of comedy is different. Mm. They exercise it differently in Hollywood than they do in a in an ad agency in Richmond. You know? Have you ever experienced it firsthand? Uh, never, because I've never worked in movies. Okay, but but I, I have heard secondhand from people who have that that you know in in an ad agency the the especially one like Martin that's driven so much by by the creative work. The the creative teams have a lot of authority. They can do a lot of things. And and when push comes to shove, the creative department will make the decision mm. because they're the ones who are who are most responsible for the quality of the work and it's the quality of the work that defines the trajectory of the agency. So so they they're deferred to often and I think that never happens in Hollywood. That, that's that a, writers are a dime a dozen, and if you don't like what I, if if I don't like what you're writing, you're gone. I'll get another one. There are 500 folks behind you. Yeah, that's yeah. right, and I think that's that's a big difference. Yeah, um, that's a bummer. Yeah, I, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. But you know, I th- I I think the I think the good ones, as in every profession, the good ones stick around and rise to the top, and and you know that's why you have. Great shows like Modern Family. Yeah, no, that's you know? a great point. Yeah, I think in every endeavor, every industry, that, that happens for yeah, sure. Yeah, All right, so at what point in your tenure with uh, Martin did you think you had a chance of being the CEO? I, you know, I, I, I kind of fell in love with the place, and I fell in love with it not just as an ad agency. I fell in love with the community of the agency, the, the feel and the culture of the place was really special. And it was, it was being surrounded by people who you genuinely liked and who you thought genuinely liked you but pushing each other really hard to do the best work you could and, and not sparing the horses when it came to pushing each other and saying, you know what, Paul, that's not good enough, you know? Um, and then fighting like cats and dogs over ideas and going across the street and having a beer. Mm. There, there was a lot of that. And that kind of atmosphere was just really cool. Um, and the more I learned about it, the more I thought, you know, I really want to, I want to 
be, I want to be part of the leadership of this. I want to be involved in the decisions that are made, long-term decisions, strategic decisions that are made to make sure something like this keeps going because it's really special and it's really cool and it's good for the people who come in contact with it. It's a good, it's a positive influence in the world. So it was less ladder climbing or maybe no ladder climbing, more about I want to be the, the steward of keeping what we have going. Yeah, it was both. I mean, there was some ambition there. I don't think there's, I wouldn't deny that. But it was, there was a lot of desire to, to be the steward of this. I, I felt really attached to it. Um, and I really, I really got, I really got committed to it. Um, and I got to be, I got to, to have a really close relationship with the, with the guy who was the CEO at the time, who was my predecessor, who's a, a man named John Adams, who's one of the most talented, amazing, brilliant people I've ever met. Um, and I got close with him and, and he helped me, he helped me through that process and we decided I should go get a, an MBA. So I went and got an MBA and, you know, kept working at it and, were you being groomed effectively? I think so. And I, and I think I knew it at the time. At that point, I was, you know, or my early 30s, late mid 30s. That's young. Yeah. And it's a young business, man. Mm. It's a young business. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was going in that direction and I kind of knew it. And, and I went and got an MBA at Kellogg, which was the best thing I could have done at the time. It's um, a fantastic MBA program. I loved it. I loved it. And I, I went there thinking like it was going to give me some kind of weird secret language I could speak to my clients in because they're all MBAs and now I'm an MBA and I can give them the secret handshake and say the right words and stuff. And it wasn't that at all. What it did was help me see my company as a company, not just as an ad agency. And it, it, was, a, it was great preparation for management. And I think that's why the wise people who sent me there, that's why they sent me there. I didn't know it at the time, but that's why they sent me there. Yeah, uh, highly creative folks tend not to be great at running businesses. No, no. And MBA programs will tend to train that out of you. They're all based on repeatable processes that have proven to work over time that reduce the risk and make it not necessary that you be very creative. Mm. Just follow the template. Just follow the framework. It works. Um, which I think is actually a dangerous idea in today's business environment because that's not what business is about anymore. It might have been 30 years ago. It's not now. Repeatable is fine if you want to generate the same income or profit for a a period of time, but eventually you become stagnant, I would think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a a recipe for incremental success, which is kind of going backwards these days. But So I I have a theory about business right now in in creativity, which is that, that... if you think back to the kind of the, the periods that define mankind, they're all defined by the thing that propelled us forward fastest, right? So right. we've got the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, which is when we learned to work with those things. You've got the Information Age, which is when we learned how to process massive amounts of information. You've got the Industrial Age, which is when we were able to harness mass production and efficiency and things like that. Um, I think, actually, we're in a creative age now mm. because... All the information you could ever possibly want is right at your fingertips on your computer. Right there. There's no there's no knowledge that that you can't have access to. So it's it, knowledge isn't going to differentiate you from anybody else. Everybody knows everything. Access to natural resources, not really anymore. There there's a more sophisticated supply chain around the world than there ever has been. You're going to be able to get things in a way that you never could before. You know, COVID notwithstanding, of course. Right. Um, so that's not the differentiator. Access to finances really isn't either. Money's moving faster and, and it's easier to get funding than it's ever been. So that's not the differentiator. Really, the question is, what can you do that's never been done with that which everyone has? 
Yeah, it's a problem that the world's never tried to solve before. It's creativity. Yeah. And that's what successful businesses have been. And they're the ones who completely rethink business models. It's what Airbnb Airbnb does with with lodging. It's what Tesla did with automobiles. It's 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 what Uber and Lyft are doing with with transportation, right? They're they're not leveraging any kind of asset that other people don't have access to. They're just completely rethinking existing categories. And it takes guts to do that too. A lot of guts. And a repeatable process and a framework is not going to get you there. No. You have to completely turn things upside down. Not in a million years. No. Creativity is what's going to get you there. The creativity age. Are are, are we saying that you've come up with that? Yes. For for the history books. For the history books right here and now. Children decades and centuries from now. That's right. We're in the creative age. Okay. Yeah. That's, uh, wow, you've given me a ton to think about. Good. Yeah, that's that's a great thing. <laughs> it's absolutely a great thing. All right, so you you become. How did you find out uh, that you were going that you were actually named CEO in in the moment? How did you find out? So the the moment was John, who was the CEO at the time, invited me for coffee, um, and and I had come to him about a year earlier, and said, "Look, I just don't want you to. I don't want there to be any doubt about this. I want this job. I really do." Uh, and he said, "All right. Well, thanks for telling me. I'm glad you kind of came out and said it." Because I hadn't, I had been kind of beating around the bush, sort of, or kind of thinking like, okay, if I just do the right things, it'll come to me. And those kind of jobs don't come to you. You have to go get them. You need to be intentional. Right. You need to be intentional. You need to go get them, right? So I went to him and I did that. And about a year and a half later, he, he called me for coffee one morning, just out of nowhere. He said, just come meet me at the coffee shop. Um, and he sat me down and he said, well, um, I just want you to know that I'm going to name you my successor as CEO of the Martin Agency. And it was just sitting in the middle of this coffee shop. It it's his call. Complete. It's his call. He's already cleared it. You know, he has to go through all the parent company stuff, and they have to vet me and do all the stuff that they do, and you know, because it's a publicly traded company, and you know, that's all important. This kind of succession planning is important. So he had done all that because John's a very intentional guy, and he plans all those things out. And he had done it, and he said, "All right, you're going to be named the successor. Here's how it's going to work. It's going to happen in 12 months." Um, and he laid out this whole kind of plan for how this is going to work. Here's what's going to happen between now. It was actually 24 months. 24 months from now, between now and then, you're going to be the general manager of the agency. And I thought, well, and I said to him, general manager, what the hell do you want me to do as general manager? What's that? You know, and he just said, go where you're needed. Mm. So I got to, it was really cool. I, I got to kind of troll around the agency and find problems to solve. So I ended up focusing on our digital capabilities and trying to make us better at digital because the big shift was going on between you know traditional media to digital media and all these social media were coming up and nobody knew what the hell was going on. Um, so I, I tried to get us more into that age and, and you know we hired a bunch of people and built some capabilities that we didn't have and, and that was cool. And then two years after that, he called the agency together and we made the switch and he handed me, he handed me, uh, it's a, um, a tiki torch like you would get at Lowe's okay. that he had cut to be about three feet long and spray painted gold. So it's like this cheesy, like straw tiki torch. It's a $4 tiki. It's torch. a $4 tiki torch <laughs> torch that he spray painted in his garage gold. And he and he passed it to me in the staff meeting in front of the in front of the staff. I'm passing the t- the tiki torch to you, um, which was pretty awesome. I still have it. It's on the shelf in my office. Actually. As you say, that's fairly creative. Oh yeah, it's pretty great. Yeah. It was pretty great. So that that's what happened, and we did that, and you know, 
as, as these things sometimes happen, we did the big staff meeting and that was announced. And right after that, he and I went into an interview with the Times Dispatch and, you know, did all that. And it was cool. Yeah, that's really cool. It was a really cool day. How old were you? I was 45. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was uh, overwhelming. You think you're going to be prepared for something like that and you're not. And, you're, you're now in charge of everything. Yeah, and I didn't officially take the job of CEO until about three months after that. Mm. And, and and he did that by design as well. So you know, we're having lots of meetings to talk about how things are going and things like that. But I still didn't feel prepared. I remember the day that I was officially made CEO and, and I took the job. I remember walking through the hallway thinking, what the hell am I going to do now? What do I do? <laughs> like, how do I behave? Um, and it's, it's, it's wild. It's a crazy experience. But it was amazing. It was amazing. It was the biggest, it's, it's the greatest honor in my professional life. It's unbelievable. How far into your tenure did you uh, feel confident? I don't know that I ever felt completely confident. Wow. It's a job that you learn every day, you know, and, and it's everything that comes across your desk is gray. Everything is a judgment call. Everything is difficult. I remember President Obama once saying that, you know, everything I deal with is difficult because if it was easy, it gets solved way before it gets to my office. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fantastic way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. And that's true of any CEO job, I think. So it, it's hard and it's demanding and it's, it, it took way more of my time than I expected to take. And it's, it's consuming. Uh, and I didn't manage it very well for a couple of years. It mm. took me a while to get used to the rhythm of the job. Uh, yeah, because there's no book that tells you no. how to be a CEO, and it's gonna—it never stops. It just never stops. Um, you got it. You have to love it because it will never stop, and it, it'll—it'll it'll take whatever you give it. You know, nights and weekends. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's never going to send you home early. It'll yeah. never tell you to take the weekend off. It'll never tell you to go to your kid's dance recital. You have to do that. Yeah. And I wasn't very good at that for the first couple of years. I didn't know how to turn it off. And it took its toll on me. It took its toll on my relationship with my kids. My wife is amazing. And I don't think she never let on that it was taking a toll on her, but I know it was. Um, I did have that moment as CEO where my kid was at a, my oldest son was at a Cub Scout camp. And it was a, one of those den meetings, right? And I was picking him up and we were walking out. And the weekend prior to that, the, the den had gone on a father-son camping trip that I couldn't go on because I had to work. And you're the, um, you're the CEO. Yeah. Oh man. So we're walking out. He's, we're walking out through the parking lot and he looks at me. He goes, Hey dad. I'm like, yeah, buddy. Um, I hate your job. I was like, Oh my God. Knife to the heart. Just, I mean, total knife to the heart. How old was your son at the time? He was like 10 or 11. Yeah. You know, I hate your job. Love you, Dad. Oh my God! It was totally, uh, yeah. totally non-judgmental. I mean, it was actually it's very judgmental, but it was, it was there was absence of malice. He just said it. I hate your job. From the malice <laughs> then, of babes, and then just, yeah. then just kept walking. I was like, Oh my God! Oh my God! I got to get this under control. And you did. It sounds like you did uh, as best I could. Yeah, you know, as best I could. I'm not sure I ever got really good at handling the demands of the job, but man. You got to make choices. This is this is the lesson to me is is that you can rise as high as you want, but if it burns your personal life, who freaking cares? Yeah, who cares? Who cares? Yeah. It's not worth it. Yeah. And I know so many people who who rose to these, you know, the highest heights of corporate America and leadership positions and they're making more money than God and they're they're sitting in big crystal palaces in New York and they're miserable. 
they're miserable and, and they, kid, their kids don't talk to them. Their kids don't talk to them. They're on their third marriage. If they're, if they're married at all, if they're connected to an, a significant other at all, and they go back to their big, you know, fancy apartment in Park Avenue and, you know, turn the lights off and go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like they're just, it's miserable. It's miserable. Let's, uh, let's go with something uh, super positive. Yeah. Fondest memory being the CEO. Uh, fondest memory of being the CEO. What was it? Um, we, uh, Martin is one of the most creatively recognized agencies in the, in the world, actually. And there's a, there's a, uh, there's a festival in, New, in, in Cannes, France, called the Cannes Festival of Creativity. And they're, they're more known for the, their movie. Exactly, festival. but it is, this is similar to that. It happens a couple month or so after the, after the film festival. But it's the biggest creative, advertising creative recognition um, in the world. And there was one year where we just tunned it at Cannes. We won so many awards because the work was so good. And being there representing the Martin Agency with the creative teams, you know, being recognized by the, by the, the preeminent creative award show in the world was an amazing moment, an amazing, amazing moment. Um, so that was proud. Um, that's a, that's a kind of a, it's not functional. I guess it's functional to the extent that it's about the product of the agency. And I was very proud of that as, as the product of the agency. The pride was, was more consistent in those moments when I was in Richmond and people would say, well, hey, what do you do? And I would say, uh, I work at the Martin Agency. And they go, oh, that's amazing. Wow, that's so cool. What do you do? And, and the moment they say, what do you do there? And I, I was able to say, I'm the CEO. Those were amazing moments for me yeah. because I was saying it out loud. And those moments were just as proud as the moments it can. Because I felt like I, was, I, could, I could say it. This is what I do. And it's really cool. It probably wasn't cool the first few times. It was probably really, really weird the first few times. You, it's you weird, it. but it's weird in a great way. It was weird in a great way because I'm so proud of the place. And I'm so proud to be connected with it. Um, and that, was, that, that happened over and over again. And every one of those moments was proud for me. That's cool. All right, taking another turn here. Yeah. Your time ended at, at Martin. Yeah, it was hard. The ending was difficult. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So we, uh, the, the agency was run by uh, three people, CEO, which is me, and a chief operating officer and a chief creative officer. And we were the three managing partners of the agency. And, and um, one day we got uh, a report that our chief creative officer had been accused of, of some sexual harassment behavior. Uh, and we looked into that and realized that, that he was going to have to leave the company. Um, and that happened. Um, and because the, the person who had lodged the complaint was, she was scared and, and she had come to us and said, please, please make sure that no one knows that this was me. I don't want my name associated with this. I don't want to be public about this. And, and we promised her we would do that. And because of that, we were not able to give the people at the company who were completely, you know, taken aback by this whole thing because this was right on the heels of everything that happened with Matt Lauer at NBC. Uh -oh. I mean, it was right. It was when the Me Too movement was at its absolute height. And we were the first advertising agency to go through this. Mm. Um, we wouldn't be the last, but we were the first to go through it on a national scale. 
and 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 it was hard. So, but we promised that we would that we would protect this woman's anonymity. And because of that, we weren't able to give the staff much information about what happened. Um, we weren't even really able to say it was sexual harassment. We, 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 so we, we kind of had to dance around it. The reason for that was not because we wanted to keep them in the dark. It was because we wanted to, because we knew any detail we gave about what happened would point directly to her. It was unavoidable. And we had promised her we wouldn't do that. So that frustrated some people at Martin for understandable reasons. It felt like we were not being transparent. It felt like we were protecting him rather than protecting the company. And, and people got very upset about it. Um, and a couple of people uh, ended up talking to the Wall Street Journal about it. Mm. They wrote a big article. Uh, and I knew at that moment that, all right, this wasn't probably not going to end well for me because the CEO doesn't survive these kind of things. Um, and at that moment, you have to ask yourself, you know, while the, while the company is going through this awful moment, what's important to you? And there were really only two things that were important to me. One was we had to protect her because we promised we would. So protect her at all costs and do whatever it takes to make sure the company can get through this because these kind of things destroy companies, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, client relationships and trust, the, the, the whole thing could fall apart, right? And I was damn sure not going to let that happen. Because you were the, one of the stewards. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to. I couldn't let that happen. So um, I, ended up, I ended up getting fired along with the, the COO. And you remember sitting down with the with the with the head of the holding company and saying, "Well, what could we have done better? What could we have done different?" And and he, to his credit, said, "There's nothing you could have done. I have no choice." And you know what? Good for you for being honest. I understand that. That's what comes with the responsibility of sitting in this chair. You got to own these things, even though you didn't perpetrate the behavior. You have to be responsible for this. So um, we were able to keep the company on a, on a, on a sound and a footing that it could go forward. And it is now incredibly successful because the leadership team at Martin is phenomenal. Um, to include you back then, I, you know, we, I, I stayed around long enough to make the transition and to, to, to work with the incoming leadership to make sure that the agency knew that we were in this together and that, that, that the holding company to their credit kept me around for another three or four months to help with whatever transition had to happen. But the, the, the person who took my job is a woman named Kristen Cavallo, and she's brilliant. And she's doing an unbelievable job at Martin. Um, they got exactly the right person to take that job at exactly the right time. And the agency is hugely successful right now. And the person who lodged the complaint was safe. She was protected. And um, you, you lived up to your And work. to this day, I think she still works there. And that's great. So the two things that had to happen happened. It sounds like you have no regrets. I have, I, have, I have no regrets. I think there are things in moments like that that you could have done better. We, did, we weren't perfect. I think we did more things right than we did wrong in that situation. You're never going to get it all right because it's so tumultuous and so stressful. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't... I'll tell you what. If we had not focused on protecting her and putting the agency on the right footing for its future... I'd have thousands of regrets. But it would have fall, it would have fallen apart. But probably. we we did the right we 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 focused on the right things and those things happened and I'm I'm happy about that. I'm proud of that. You had a steward mindset pretty early on at Martin and it sounds like you carried it through. Yeah, I tried to. 
Thank you. I'm glad I'm, it, it, I, I tried to. I didn't do everything right. Nobody ever does. Um, well, you're human. But yeah, so so it was hard, man. You, you never want to leave the company you spent more than half your life working at the way I left Martin. It was half really of your hard. life, not half of your adult life, not half was, of your career, but basically half of your life at that point. I, I, I was 50 years old when I left and I had worked there for 26 years. I'd never done anything as long as I was a person at the, working at the Martin Agency. Nothing. I'd never lived in the same city. I had never been married that long. I, I'd never done anything for as long as I had worked at the Martin Agency. Were, were you uh, scared to the point that you were witless, or was it pretty slow, the process, and you, and you kind of got back on your you feet know, pretty quickly? I wasn't scared. I was disoriented. Mm-hmm. It's it's like it's like the world is is a little off its axis. You know, like like the things that you had always counted on were not there anymore. You're not you're not going into that place and working at that place and 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 you're not with those people anymore. And, and that's a really weird disorienting feeling. And it took me it took me a couple of months to get over how disorienting that was. Um, I kept working and doing things, so I was taking on some consulting jobs and 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 doing some of that and doing some work at William and Mary pretty quickly after I left Martin because I couldn't sit still for that long but it felt even while I was doing those things it felt disorienting it felt like this is not I'm not used to this this is not what I'm supposed to be doing <laughs> you never had <laughs> how had does it, this work <laughs> that, that that disorienting feeling nothing like that had happened to you in your life never and and I think that's the biggest and honestly best lesson for me from that which, which is that, that you can live this charmed life, this privileged life that I lived for 50 years. I had an unbelievable family. My parents, both of whom are still alive, been married for almost 60 years. They have an amazing, amazing relationship. My relationship with my wife is great. My kids are amazing. My family's great. Um, my career was a, was, a, was a blast rocket ride to the top of this company that I loved. And then, boom, your charmed life is over, you know? Or so it seems. Well, I don't mean your life is over. The charmed part is over. And, There's and a break in the charm, even, yeah. Yeah, even you, can, even you can hit the rocks. And you just hit the rocks, buddy. And this is what it feels like. So here we, here we go, you know? And there's something very humbling and humanizing about that where you start to feel like maybe you're just one of the lucky ones that that's never going to happen to. And then it happens and you think, oh, shit. <laughs> okay. I, I, need to, I, I need to pull it together here. And it, and it was a challenge. It was hard. But it was good. I was going to say, good. looking back at it, I imagine there were a lot of good aspects. You know, it. It, makes you, it makes you realize some things. It, it taught me some lessons, one of which was, as much as I loved that place, I invested too much of my identity in it. Mm. And that's not healthy. You should never do that. You should work at a place you love with people you love and that you care about, but you should never let it become your identity and, your, and who you are because it's not who you are. You're something else, you know? Yeah. Um, because if you let it become too much of your identity, the, the, the feeling of, of discomfort and, and disorientation that happens when that eventually goes away, which it will, by the way. Always. Um, can be overwhelming. And it was overwhelming for me for a little while. But you're in a good place now. I'm in a great place now. I love what I'm doing. I'm working with amazing people in a consulting firm. Um, 
that's doing great. We're doing awesome work with really interesting clients and I'm teaching at William and Mary and I couldn't be happier. What are you teaching? I'm teaching uh, marketing. I'm on the marketing faculty. And you're teaching kids as part of a, uh, is it a part-time or are these full-time students? They're, they're full-time MBAs. Oh, these are so MBAs. I'm, okay. I'm teaching in two programs. One's the full-time MBA program and then I helped develop and I'm now the faculty director of the online masters in marketing hmm. there which is really cool. So when I got hired there, the dean sat me down and he was like, I want you to design the master's program that you would have hired for, hired from at Martin. And I thought, that's really a cool brief. I can do that. So we put together the, these classes that we all created from scratch um, that, that are focused on the mix of business analytics and creativity. So there's a left brain, right brain kind of balance in this program that's really interesting. It sounds like you're having a blast. I love it. It's really, really fun. Academia is, it's a whole different kettle of fish from corporate America. But uh, and this is coming from the 1.6 GPA at some point. Oh, totally. Here. They yeah. clearly never check my transcript. <laughs> <laughs> so if I get fired from my job, you know, because I said it on this podcast. I, I, I don't know of any way Mary uh, associated people know. that listen to this. I don't know. If you are, don't look at my transcript. Um, I think you're probably pretty safe given your track record. <laughs> I, I don't know. We'll see. I hope so. But yeah, so it, they didn't look at my transcript earlier, but I loved it. I loved building it. There's something about um, the academic environment that is a combination, especially at William & Mary, of really engaging smart students who really want to learn. I mean, they are really paying attention. They are there to learn. That's their job. And, and they're very serious about it. But you're also in an environment that thrives on um, open exchange and development of ideas. That's what academia is about. So you're in the, when you're in the business world, so much of it comes down to execution. Mm. You know, we have to get this stuff done. When you're a professor, your execution is teaching the concepts, right? Right. It, it, it's not running a company. It's a different thing. So you're much more oriented toward the ideas and the concepts and the, that you're developing. And I like that. I, I like that at this point in my life. It's really interesting. That's great. All right, two last things. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that we asked Boomer this question. We, we may not have been asking this particular question when we recorded with him, uh, and actually this is my co-host. I have an occasional co-host uh, that joins me maybe a third of the time. It's usually athletes he likes to join for. Anyway, the question is, uh, you get to be a, a talk show host. Yep. One time only. It's only one, one hour. You get to have a male guest, a female guest, a musical group, or a solo musical uh, performer. Uh, if, you, if you love comedy, you can also throw in a, a comedian. Uh-huh. Uh, these folks can be alive or dead. Okay. They can be famous or not famous. They can be close to you or strangers to you. It, it literally any anyone who's ever lived uh, that fits those four descriptions. Wow. Okay. Give me the categories again. Male. Yep. Female. Mm-hmm. Music. Comedy. Male. Female. Music. Comedy. Okay. Uh, the male is Jesus. Okay. Uh, I think he's our most popular answer. I, well, everybody wants to say, all right, what's the deal, man? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, is, is this a real thing or are you just full of it? What's right. up? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I, I would, I would want to talk to him. Uh, female. Um, female, female. I, for some reason, I want to talk to Amelia Earhart. Okay. What happened? I want to know what happened. happened. But also, like, there's there's so much behind her story that is that is about 
pioneering this male field as a woman in the what 40s or 50s mm. you know yeah how, how did you do this like what is it about you that made you able to do this you know and then of course what happened yeah you know uh okay male female and then music and comedy uh music 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 beethoven okay how the hell do you write that music when you're going deaf uh, going deaf and deaf. Yeah, pr- prolific doesn't even begin to describe what he accomplished. No, like how do you do that? How do you, what's what's in your mind? What kind of what are you envisioning when you can't hear the music to enable you to write that music? What's going on in your mind while you're doing that? You he had to be. It. Yeah, there's I, I, there's no one else in human history that. Could, that accomplished that. Yeah, I think there's something about it that that speaks to the to the to the wondrous power of the human mind. Like, how is the human mind able to conjure that? Do you think the human mind conjured it, or he was born with it and he just tapped into it as he was losing know. his hero? Yeah. I, I don't know. You would find I, out clearly, on the talk show. I, I don't. You don't learn that. He was somehow born with it, but mm. I'd like to have him talk about it. Yeah, like what's going on in his experience or in his mind that allows him to do that? Because I don't understand it. Comedy. Hmm. You don't have to have a comedian if you're not really into. Oh no, I, I like comedy. Um, Lenny Bruce. Oh, <laughs> the the original guy that uh, turned it in the direction it's traveling yeah. now, right? Yeah, and you know the stuff he went through to do it, and, and man, the forces he pushed against. I think we're going to need two hours for your show. Dude. Oh, just talking about Lenny Bruce, we could do that for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the forces he pushed against, the kind of determination, the, the, the commitment to that as art and subversion. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, yeah, that would be amazing. He was the first clear, clearly subversive comedian. Yes. I, yeah. he, he opened, willfully so. He opened the door for George Carlin, Richard Pryor. Yeah. All of them. I mean, willfully so. He paved the way for all those people and made it okay for them to do it. Uh, I think you just gave the most four powerful answers I, I may have ever heard. <laughs> well, thanks. They're, they're all historical, yeah. uh, but they all have incredible things to share that I think anybody that knows part of their stories would love to hear the answers to. Yeah, good. Well, thanks. Yeah, That would be fun. I'd tune into that show. I would absolutely tune into that show. Maybe the first question is, how did you get these four people that aren't living anymore? That'd be the thing. Yeah, I want to yeah. talk to the booker because <laughs> yeah. whoever what they you are do? has got it going. You need them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, last uh, topic. Uh, just tell us about your family, your immediate family. Oh, my family. Um, I am married. I have two sons. Uh, my wife, uh, Betsy, and I have been married since 1994. Um, and she is the kindest uh most caring amazingly selfless person i've ever met and everybody who meets her loves her and everybody who knows me knows me as betsy's husband oh you're betsy's husband (laughs) (laughs) yes i am it's a compliment Uh, she is phenomenal um yeah she is phenomenal uh i have a, a my oldest son is patrick he's 25 and he's a musician and he just got off the road from touring with his band uh, house and home check them out okay they're on spotify and apple music and all the usual music channels they're awesome house they're, and home. house and home okay yeah they uh they're they're i guess indie punk is what he would call it um 
Don't call it pop punk because he'll he'll smack you in the face. I don't know but, the difference. Uh, I, I'm not sure I do either. <laughs> but uh, they're awesome. So he's doing that. He's happy. He's he's brilliant, smart, awesome guy. And then uh, my other equally brilliant, smart, and awesome son is Ethan, who's 22. And this coming weekend is graduating from Emerson College in Boston okay. with an acting degree. And he's going to hang out in Boston, I think, and, and see if he can't find a, a couple of parts to play over the summer and, and try to make it as an actor. I think he envisions himself eventually going to New York. Mm. Um, he's really into the stage and drama. And he lives, I think he lives, his, artistically he lives on, on two poles. One is Shakespeare and the other is this like really subversive, weird avant-garde theater. He likes those two ends of the spectrum. Wow. Yeah, he's, he's terrific. He's really talented and really good. So who knows, you know, I'm biased, but hopefully at the end of the day, I've got a rock star and a, and a star of stage and screen on my hands. Yeah. Boston, uh, has really become an epicenter the last two or three decades for acting, or maybe it's been longer than that. Yeah. He's, he loves it up there. And I'm not sure he thought he would when he moved up there to go to school. Emerson has a great acting program and that's why he went there. Uh, but he fell in love with Boston. I think if he can stay, he will. Yeah, Boston's a neat town. Yeah, yeah. He's decided he's not quite ready for New York, whatever ready for New York means. It's a lot. Uh, it's, it's a lot, lot to take. It's yeah. a lot. Um, but, man, he's, he's, he's good. So he could, he could get it done. Awesome. Well, yeah. Matt, I really appreciate you doing this. Oh, man, it's been so much fun. Thank yeah. you for having me. Absolutely enjoyed uh, learning a lot more about you. So. Well, the time has flown. Yeah. It's, it's an hour and 24 minutes, a little longer than Oof. I think what I said. Oof. Apologies to everybody out there who listened to it. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.